as a church community, how we structure and organize our teaching is, is hopefully kind of strategic in the sense of we do different things throughout the year. Sometimes we take a letter or a book of the Bible and we just kind of chew on it and, and see what it, it, it means for us as a community right now. Um, we're going to be doing that this fall. We're actually going to be um, un, unpacking the letter to the churches. Uh, it's basically a circular letter uh, called Revelation. And we are going to unpack that starting middle of September. Um, sometimes we take a practice, like a, an actual practice of Jesus, and we unpack it and we jump into it and, and with, with both feet as a community, like we did earlier this year when we talked about generosity and we talked about Scripture. Sometimes we take a theme. Today we're going to be doing something that, and really, in all honesty, it's very kind of core to where we're going as a church. You could call this a vision series. You could call this whatever. But it's really like a core pillar of who we want to be as a church. And it's gone through a lot of prep. And we are calling this a people who transform. Now, I want to talk about change today. Change. Like, how do we change as human beings? Now, this is not an exhaustive teaching. This isn't like all the answers today. Like some of you are like, yes, give me the answers. How do we change? But this is something I've been thinking about and our leadership team and teaching team have been thinking about for a long time. And where we're headed as a church, this is, we're kind of re-architecting how we uh, see us how we see our community and what we're about. And so this is really a core four weeks. And so if, you, if you're going to be out of town one of the next few weeks or whatever, um, I would encourage you to keep up to date with this because this is going to tell you a lot about where we're going as a church. So let me read uh, one of the verses that Mandy read earlier, and then I want to pray for us. Second Peter 1 Verse 3, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Let me pray. God, we are getting into something that is going to open up a great deal of possibility in front of us. the possibility to see things change in our lives, to see things change here in our church. And so this morning, I'm just asking that you would search us. Would you show us what it looks like to be a community that's about change, that's about transformation, that is seeking that not only in our own lives, but in each other. Would you wake us up from some sort of a malaise we might be in? Would you awaken us to the possibility of change? Pray these things in your name. Amen. Many times in our lives, 
we think that growth and change happen in a very kind of linear up and to the right fashion, like a graph, right? Like you do this step, and then once you reach that step, you take another step. And I just don't think that's how it works. I mean, I wish it was that simple. <laughs> I wish, you, wish I could just sit down with you and go, all right, here's the three, th- you master these two, three things, you are going to lead a flourishing, beautiful, hopeful, joy-filled life. Now, there's a lot of churches out there that might tell you that. Um, There might be some self-help books that might tell you that. Um, I just think it's a lot more messy than that. I think changing in our life has a lot more complexity to it. And in our desire to change, um, our desire to change really personally goes up and down, doesn't it? Some of you might be kind of New Year's resolutions people, where you get to the end of that calendar, like, man, I really need to change some things. And then February, you're like, dang, didn't do so good. But the reality is change in our life takes effort. It actually takes intentionality. It actually takes outside help, and it takes a bit of commitment. Now, how do we become the kind of people that Jesus was thinking about when he said, behold, I make all things new? How do we become those kind of people? People who are less anxious, less bitter, less angry, People who are less outraged and more kind. People who are less consumed with negative thoughts about ourselves and about others. People who are less inclined to avoid our own pain and the shadow parts of us. People who are more aware of who God is and who we are. People who are more aware of what God is doing all around us. More attuned to the people around us personally. And maybe the kind of people who are more generous with our time and, and our emotions towards other, our love and our money and, and our tables to other people. How do, we be, how do we become like that? I read an article a while back, and it's about when people go into Alcoholics Anonymous and they work the plan they have the power to become sober. And I was reading this article, and the the Alcoholics Anonymous statement is transforming alcoholics into people who live flourishing lives of sobriety. Have you experienced um, recovery in your life, if you've experienced recovery in your life personally or with somebody, or you're going through it with somebody, you know that it is a huge journey. It's an enormous journey. But what makes becoming a sober, flourishing person possible? It's po- possible because there's a theory of how people change and a set of practices designed to that end in Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, some of you are freaking out. You're like, 
Why are you talking about Alcoholics Anonymous? Well, it's, just, they, like, it's, a, it's a Christian. It started with like Christian principles. It's like a really beautiful thing. It, nothing's perfect in this world, but you're probably like, Ryan, why are we talking about this? Well, I just want to share with you just really honestly, I've attended a lot of church in my life. Like a, like a, a butt ton of church. <laughs> just seeing if you're awake. And I mean, growing up, uh, youth group, Christian college, went to chapel. I had to go to chapel. It made you go to chapel. You had to like sign a form that you went to chapel. Um, I've been in a lot of, I, I go to church a lot here. I go to church here more than all of you go to church here. <laughs> Except for last summer. I've done a lot of church. I've read the Bible a lot. I've studied the Bible a lot. I've paid a lot of money to study the Bible a lot. Okay? I've prayed a lot. I've learned how to be in different church places a lot. The words to say, things to wear, things like that. How to operate, you know, in the church world a lot. But doing a lot of church didn't change me. It hasn't changed me, like really deeply. I recognized that last summer while I was on sabbaticals, I took a step back and I regrouped how I see myself, how I see our church, what's important, what's not. I realized that uh, the way I deeply change isn't necessarily because I attend church. Uh, this is like throwing a huge wrench into the machine of church, okay? And I'm sharing with you these things just in straight honesty and vulnerability. Like when I talk up here or when we lead you in worship up here, um, you may enjoy those things. They may mean something to you. But fundamentally at the core of who you are, it doesn't change you. It doesn't. It may lead you to desire change. It may lead to some things in your life that are important, but it's professed truth. We'll get into that here in a second. So last fall, we started, we did a teaching series on the way of Tov, which was just me just like brain dumping all these new learnings in my life about who the church could be and what we're about. And, and the leadership team and myself have been working for the better part of a year on something tangible for us um, on the, in this area of change and transformation in our lives. And one of the things that has frustrated, frustrated me, and, and, and um, this may offend some of you, and that's intended. Um, one of the things that has frustrated me about the contemporary Protestant evangelical church is that it lacks a clear working theory of transformation. A clear working theory of transformation that is then codified in a set of practices that are accessible for those who want to be transformed. Okay? Okay. So when you enter Alcoholics Anonymous, there's a reason behind desire to be there. And people tell you, if they share their story, that change is possible. Sobriety is possible. And they're like, this is how we do it. 
and it's messy, and it's not perfect, and it's all that kind of stuff, but the goal is, is that you would one day become that kind of person. I don't think the modern Western Christian church has that. And that is what's stirring in me. The primary passion in me is no longer located in the church growing, okay? And like our church getting more people and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it's great if that happens, but I'm interested in being as clear and as intentional as we can on what it looks like for us to change, to transform, to be the kind of people that are ushering in what God is up to in this world. Not through our professed truth, but by our embodied truth. Now, here's how it usually works. And whether it's a, uh, an Alcoholics Anonymous group or even like a CrossFit gym, the CrossFit gyms also have a great kind of uh, architecture around this too. Like if you want to change your body physically um, and you work the, se- the steps and you become part of a community that's CrossFit in it, and I'm not saying CrossFit's perfect, but it's, it's at least a, a set of practices that will help you change. Um, if you, typically with church world, people tell you, um, believe in Jesus um, and you will be saved. And, and we've talked about salvation, what that means. Uh, but typically it's kind of like kind of uh, fuzzy after that. Uh, you kind of get the feeling that you need to show up on Sundays and you get the feeling that maybe you need to volunteer and you get the feeling like that maybe you should stop doing certain things, right? But there's really not a clear path. There's not really a clear set of practices that help you change. Um, so typically, yes, believe in Jesus. Yes. But why if you work the plan laid out in Alcoholics Anonymous, you can experience a flourishing sobriety, but if you do what people to tell you to do in the evangelical church complex, you don't really necessarily have the same power. What, what, what's missing? Well, can going to church produce sober-minded, flourishing, healthy, loving, hospitable, and generous people? I'd like to think so. but I can't say yes, okay? If I desire, and this is what I I think I desire, I think I desire to see that the change that Jesus has promised in me, for me, for us, for you, that change that one day he will make all things new. And there's like a road to that. And there's, there's that at one point down the road, I'm going to be more loving and more kind and more at peace and less anxious and all those things. How can I get the newness of Jesus down into how I treat my body, how I confront my past, how I curb digital addiction in my life, how I spend my money and my time. How do I get the newness of Jesus there? So here's my attempt to share with you and us how we are re-architecting how we approach transformation as a church. And we start with our gospel identity. 
you and I are changed first by a change in our identity. Scripture, uh, biblical writers use big images and metaphors like from darkness to light, from outside to inside, from foreigner to being in the family of God. 2 Corinthians 5.17, this is a familiar verse to many of you. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. So when we choose to pivot our lives and, uh, and, and, and express our allegiance and surrender to Jesus um, and trust Jesus, the scriptures say that uh, many of we experience renewal at that moment. We, we, we experience uh, renewal in your inner person, that, that who you are fundamentally changes. The old life dies, and in the, the words of Jesus, you are reborn. Eight. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for the gospel will save it. So, I mean, picture the cross is a horrible way to die. The disciples know this. Jesus is announcing the fact that that is how he's going to die. And he basically says, this is the entryway by which you experience new life. Dying to live. And this is the picture of baptism. A new life is promised. That's why when in baptism, when you go under the water, the symbolism there is you're dying to your old self. And when you come back out, new life, it's an announcement. It is a moment in time. It is an entry into the community of God. It's a beautiful moment. It's a marker. Paul goes on to explain that in Galatians 2. He says this, I've been crucified with Christ. Was Paul physically crucified with Christ? No. He's metaphorically saying that because of Christ, because of what I've chosen to align with Jesus in allegiance and surrender, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The, now, the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's Paul saying, I had an old life and I died to it. And this is the power, this is that initial power. This is the initial healing power of God to change us, to fundamentally change us, to bring us back, to restore us holistically. This is more or less the gospel. This is how change happens. Yet, how do we change? There are professed followers of Jesus. Lives of deception. Publicly and privately. Many of us who live lives that secretly we cultivate things that are not about Jesus. And oftentimes, um, especially in the pastoral world, those can make the news. So the question remains, how do we change? If we have a professed truth, how do we change? And why don't we just automatically, when we profess a truth, transform 
when we trust the gospel of Jesus? Why don't we just automatically just hyper jump to where God wants us to be? This is why the language of identity in the New Testament is so helpful. Okay? You have an identity that is real. It's, it's just not fully realized yet. Okay? It's real, but not realized. So it's real. God says it's who you are, but it's not realized totally by you and others yet. Right? The gospel of Jesus produces followers that are like him in a real sense, but not yet like him in a realized sense. And this is the language of the New Testament. You are a new creation. But sometimes we wake up and we don't feel that. Or our our mouths towards our loved ones don't reflect that. Right? So, but scripture tells us, but that's who you are. But it's just not realized yet. How do we get to the realized part? The change God is making in all of our lives is for us to become like Jesus. So when I'm saying that change is possible, I'm saying that change is possible for you and I to become like Jesus. The cry of most of the New Testament writers is, if, if, the, if that is real about us, then who we are, that's uh, really who we already are, and we need to keep changing to live into that. So let's go through Second Peter, and I have a few points for us as we get on the road here. Second Peter 1, 3 through 9 says, His divine power has given us everything we need. Not some of it. Not we have to supplement it. Everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. You and I do not lack the power to change. He's given us everything we need. We don't lack the power. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Now, there's a lot going on here. Basically, what I want to tell you is, the first thing is, he's giving you and I everything we need. The second is, you do not lack the the invitation. You and I do not lack the invitation to change. We don't lack it. The invitation has always been there. For this very reason, make every effort, and if you're underlining anything, that's a good one, to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure... They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. So this is, I think, a really powerful passage. You and I do not lack the power to change 
or the invitation to experience transformation. But sometimes we lack the effort. Sometimes, man, ugh. And you and I lack the effort. And in, in, in the passage here, I think it's just really, let's just be, it's honest to be, it's okay to be honest about this. It's okay to admit this. We have become blind and forgotten. The pace of life, the, the requirements of us, the, anybody can raise their hand and go, man, summer went really fast. Okay. Like, okay. That's just a, a check for you to go. Okay. We get wiped in to life so fast that it's just like we, we become blind and forget that the invitation for you and I and the power for you and I to change is there. It's there for us. A certain kind of ambivalence creeps into our lives. If we're just being honest. Some of us go, yeah, um, I would like to see this change in my life, but this is just the way I am. This is just the way I am. Or there's this voice that's been in your head or maybe a kind of a narrative script you got from uh, growing up or from things that people have told you and you just believe it about yourself. Or you, some of us have default reactions in our lives. We don't know where they come from. But we just knee-jerk reaction to some things, whether it's an anxiety or whatever. And, and there's just this, like, I can't change that. I can't change that in me. And I want to talk about age really quick, too. I want to be honest. Some of you in the room, you have this tacit feeling in your brain that says, I'm too old to change. It's not worth it. This is just how I've been these many decades in my life, and I just don't feel like it's worth getting into this or, or, or pushing into this area of my life that, that has gone unchanged for decades. And, it, and there's like a retirement mentality there that just says, I've done my time, I've done the things, I'm a pretty good person, and I'm just going to let this one ride out. Some of you are saying, I'm, I'm too young to really have to work really hard to change. I got, I got to get my career together. I got a family. I, got, I, got, I, I don't have time. I'm too young. I'll deal with that when I have more margin in my life. Well, let's just fast forward that, okay? I just, I'm going to be straight up honest with you. If the patterns you're living into right now are kind of destructive and they're not Christ-like, um, that's going to spill out on a lot of people ahead of you including your family and your kids and your career. <laughs> so when I say you and I don't lack the power or the invitation, but sometimes we lack the effort, you are freaking out at the word effort because somewhere in your uh, theology, you, someone told you that grace is completely free and you don't have to do anything to deserve it and, 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 and effort is not required. And I'm telling you that that's two different things. God redeems us into his family so that we would become more like him. Not for you to sit there and just be like a grumpy 
mess of a person with a ticket to heaven. And I'm not talking about willpower here either. For some of you who are thinking, is he talking about willpower with effort? Like, I need to like, just grip my teeth. And You cannot will yourself to love people, in my opinion. Um, all will is is, the, is simply the human capacity to choose. And so, here's, I'm going to throw this quote up on the screen. This might help some things, okay? The will, this is James Bryant Smith, so he's got a... a trifecta of books that are fantastic. Um, This is one of them. He says, the will is neither strong or weak. Like a car, it it, it has only one task, to do with the driver, the mind influenced by the body in the social realm tells it to do. Therefore, change or lack thereof is not an issue of the will at all. Change happens when these other influencers are modified. The good news is that we have control over those other influencers. When new ideas, new practices, and new social settings are adopted, change happens. And anybody who's gone through recovery knows that. When you surround yourself with people who are recovering, and you adopt new practices... And, and you are informed with new ideas and new possibilities, there's a greater potential that you are going to change. So my guess is most of us want to see something change in our lives. We have just never been taught a reliable pattern of transformation. And so back to my original thought that churches have spent way too much time trying to grow a brand in their institutional footprint because they've, they've done all that work and we were a part of that. <laughs> but, but there's been less work on working out a clear theory of how personal transformation happens. Especially one that has like a codified set of practices that are accessible to the people who want to change. And I want to give the remaining days as a pastor to that. I'm going to be 50 in June. 50. Some of you are like, young. (laughs) But like, if I look at the rest of my days as a pastor, I want it to be towards that. Not how many people came. Dallas Willard wrote, uh, has written a bunch of books that have affected me deeply, but he says in one of his books, imagine you convince someone to really be like Jesus. Jesus. That abundant life is on offer. That a full, flourishing, beautiful, joy-filled peace, uh, not in in the midst of craziness of life. Like, I'm not saying you, you know, this is regular life, but imagine you convince someone to really be like Jesus. What would that be like? And he's like, we need more people to be the rare leader to, to see that happen. And, and I circled that. Like that fundamentally affected me. And maybe we'll be a rare kind of church. I don't know. I, I know that there's more and more churches in the West that are turning their attention towards this idea of practice and, and, and discipleship and not just filling 
seats. Last fall, I introduced you a word that none of us are really used to, but the early church had set up within their structure something called the catechumenate. And the catechumenate was something like when you walked with somebody who wanted to learn what it was like to follow Jesus and you walked with them and you went to things together and you taught them about this. And as a friend, not as like I'm a leader, as a friend, you walked with them to do this. And you entered this this season of discipleship with them. And it was beautiful. So let me just throw out three things that we're chewing on. How do we do this? First of all, you just need to know this is a working theory. Meaning it's a theory that I think works. (laughs) But we have to test it. Like any theory, you have to test it. You have to work it. And we deeply believe that change is possible, and we want to make every effort to make that possible in us. And this theory revolves around these three things, truth, practice, and community. And we choose to give ourselves over to these things again and again and again, I believe, with the power of the Holy Spirit, that things will change in us, that we will see change. And it will be messy and hard and difficult and beautiful and all of the above. So let me just start with truth. In order to change, we have to know what's real. Like, what is true? We have a truth problem in our world right now, I just believe. And we come to truth in different ways. And so some of us face truth when we reach the rock bottom of ourselves. Anybody reached rock bottom in their selves? <laughs> Two of us. That was like a really, like, anybody like kind of like really met that person that you stare across to in the mirror? Uh, when we face ourselves, we face our failures that we've been denying for a long time. When you face the real you, there's something that begins to happen. Sometimes we face truth in the form of a new thought or a new experience or a new idea that we hadn't thought before. But ultimate truth, in my belief, comes in the form of Jesus Christ. And I think his claims to truth, I can't, I can't wrestle away. Uh, way the truth and the life, he says, he says that the truth will set you free Um, These are beautiful statements of who God is in the person of Jesus. And we need the truth of Jesus to change our life. But it's more difficult than it seems. Because there's a difference between professed truth, which many of us are used to, and embodied truth. The Western church has a track record of being really, really, really leaning heavily on professed truth. Professed truth. Neck up truth. Okay? So, I'm going to illustrate this. You're like, what's the diff? Let me illustrate this. The, the difference is, do you remember that cool 90s fad called the ropes course? Anybody done a ropes course? Yes. It was so killer in the 90s. Like everybody wanted a ropes course. It, 
yeah, but it was just, it was hot then. Like every camp wanted one, every church wanted one. Anyhow, so never done a ropes course before. You climb up this freaking tall pole. You're strapped into this thing like this. It's really uncomfortable. And you've got a, like a carabiner and you've got a, a line that's holding you up there. And you get to the top of this pole and you're taught all of your life that gravity is real, right? And in your bones, you feel it. You're, you're on the top of this pole and it's like moving and you're like, okay. And then you're taught, uh, th- these are just embodied beliefs that you have that if I fall, I die. <laughs> and you live by the rule of gravity. But professed truth is, Ryan, trust the rope and jump from the pole you're standing on to a little plank (laughs) six feet away. Now, if it was on the ground, it's like, okay. But it's not. It's 30 feet in the air. And the professed truth is the guy down below going, trust the rope, right? Now, when I stand at the top of the pole with the rope and the harness, I can profess this rope will, I trust the rope. Okay? I can recite a creed of ropes. <laughs> right? I can sing a song about trusting my harness. Um, I can teach about it. I can. I can use historical references and quotes and graphs and charts professing the rope. But embodied truth is actually leaping. Embodied truth is doing it. All right? Is to jump to the plank. That's why it's really hard for you and I to break out of some of the old lies that we live into, okay? We don't trust. We haven't made the professed truth embodied truth. They, it, it, we have things that we believe about ourselves and about others that are embodied in our bones. They're in our neural pathways and they are our mental maps and it goes really, really deep. It goes deeper than you think it goes. Angela was telling me the other day about this study that was done on rats. And what the, the, I don't know if it was psychologists or whoever, but um, they fed rats cherries. And every time the rats ate the cherries, they shocked the rats. And after a while, the rats didn't eat the cherries. Shocker right? (laughs) But here's the fascinating part. The rats had kids. Guess who didn't eat cherries? The baby rats. Now, I just want to tell you something that in your hyper-individualistic mind, you feel like you are autonomous to everybody else in your life. And what I'm telling you is, no, you're not that there are mental maps that have actually come through your DNA, through your family. And this is why someone can't trust, 
You, someone, someone you trust can tell you something that's absolutely true and beautiful about you, and you won't believe it because you are stuck. Embodied truth is ultimately what we're after. The, the truth of Jesus embodied into us that we are loved, that we are, that we are chosen, that we are beautiful, that we are image bearers of God, that he has a plan for us, that there, there's healing possibilities. But knowing the truth about ourselves is, and, and about who God is is not enough. That, some of that's neck up stuff. We need to embody the truth. We need to practice it. That's why the second thing is practice. So many of us need, like that quote said, a new way of operating, a new rhythm, a new, a new way of getting the truth into our bodies, uh, the, these mental maps of reality. So, so for instance, we see this all over the New Testament, the practices of Jesus. There were, there were inner practices of Jesus, of prayer and solitude and and uh, fasting and Sabbath and, and beautiful things. And there were these outward practices of generosity and hospitality and serving and healing. And when I, when I experience personally ex- experience real change in my life, it's not because I learned something new. It's because I practiced it. And I have been so neck up, you guys, in my discipleship to Jesus. I'm just being honest with you. Most of my discipleship to Jesus has been learning new things. But it's not in my bones. You know what's in my bones? Individualism, consumerism, achievement, earning, hedonism, self-focus. That's what's in my bones. I wrote yesterday in my, I've been doing some, some practice, <laughs> and yesterday I wrote, um, something just came up to me, like, I want to cultivate, I want God to cultivate in me a stillness. I, I, I really want that. And it's been something I've been just like circling around with, like, what do I want? A desire in my life is to cultivate, cultivate a stillness in me. And there are practices to help me do that. And in a city like Denver, here's what I found. It's absolutely intoxicating. The pace, the possibilities, the flow, the opportunities, the, all of it's intoxicating. And I need to orient my physical body towards different practices that align with Jesus. Jesus. And finally, the last thing is uh, transformation has got to involve community. As much as you don't like this, (laughs) you cannot follow alone. You need other people to speak into that, to, to wrestle that out with you. I'm not Asking you to be connected to everyone. Just a few. So truth, practice, community all happen. It all happens within the ups and downs of life. But we need the Holy Spirit um, to really transform us. And as much as you think I'm telling you it's all about your effort. I'm just asking that you and I would consider putting us in ourselves in a position for the Spirit to move. 
That's really what this is. It is the Spirit of God that leads us into all truth. It is the work of the Spirit that makes us one with God. And we have intentionally, and when we intentionally engage in new practices, it is the Spirit that brings us into deep fellowship with each other, not just desserts and sports talk, which I like to hang out in, both of those things, but in deep fellowship with each other. It's the Spirit that brings transformation. It's the Holy Spirit that, that is at the very core of change in our lives. And we believe that, that salvation is a past event, but that it's ongoing, it's healing, and it's a present, and, and it's a future event, that it's going to be uh, something that will culminate. So let me ask you this. Can someone be functionally saved, saved, and set apart, and yet have a road of change ahead of them. Yes. <laughs> and the invitation to apprentice Jesus is just that. It's an invitation. If you are standing in one place and going, okay, change me. Shoot that bolt. Maybe that sermon will do. You know, maybe that new, new worship tune will change me. I'm not making fun of worship tunes and sermons. <laughs> I'm just saying that we've got to do something. We've got to put ourselves into action. We've got to have courage. We have to make the professed the embodied. We have to take the leap in some places. The invitation to experience the life of the creator God of the universe, initially intended for you and I, will take us moving. And I believe we can experience it. It's possible. Jesus asked many people to follow him. He would ask people all the time. He asked some fishermen. He asked a tax collector. He asked all these people. Some of them did. Some of them didn't. He's not going to twist your arm. Some of them have the courage and the desire to exert that movement, that step, that effort to follow. We have agency. We're just not in control. The Holy Spirit is going to do that work. And so I, I, I think I'm talking about Mark 4 and through the Spirit in Galatians 5, maybe a little Galatians 6. I talked to, thought about the parable of the soils, and really the parable of the soil is also called the parable of the soul. And how we can be receptive and maybe they can plucked away because we're, you know, busy. And here's what I want to get at today. We can begin to curate the kind of atmosphere in our lives to receive transformation. We do not control the growth, but we receive it. So the question is, do you want to change? Do you want to experience transformation? How are you intentionally creating an atmosphere in your world for change to happen? So for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about, uh, not in this order, but we're going to talk about truth and community and practice. And we're going to tell stories. We might have some interviews. And we're going to give you this fall some places in your life that you can grab onto. Now, here's what I will tell you. There will be things that you will resist. You will hear things from me and you'll go, no way. 
And here's the secret. (laughs) If you feel that, chances are it might be something for you to be curious about. It might be something for you to be curious about. So here's some questions for us. And I'm going to bring Trent and um, Mackenzie up. And we're going to just kind of reflect. Here's a few questions for you. How much of your apprenticeship to Jesus has been located in professed truth compared to embodied truth? How much has it been neck up like me? How have you experienced growth in your life through community? How have you experienced growth in your life through adopting some new practices? How have you experienced change in your life through hitting rock bottom or deeper self-discovery or a new understanding of who God is? But here's the one I want you to linger with as we sing. Where do you presently desire to see and experience change in your life? Where is that? Like, and I think I've been pretty honest with you today, and I would like for you to be really honest with yourself. Where do you want to change? Where do you want to grow? It might be one of those places where you're like, there's just no way. Way. There is a way. Let me pray. God, thank you for thank you for loving us so much that you don't want us to stay where we're at. Thank you for being the one who yells up at us, just trust and jump. Thank God you welcomed us to your family, your household. We had nothing to deserve that. Your grace just spills all over us. But you're not done. You have a flourishing, beautiful, messy life ahead of us that requires potentially some pain, some suffering, potentially some cleaning up of messes in our life to face ourselves in a real way. It may require us the courage of of letting other people into our world and pursuing others and theirs. God, I believe you have some beautiful opportunities for us to practice that are really, really difficult. But that's why they're called practice. And you want to invite us into a way of living that is, all I can say is flourishing. So God, help us to point to the places in our lives where we want to see change. Amen.